0: Next up on Book TV's Afterwards, author and political columnist Michelle Malkin offers her thoughts on U.S. immigration policy. She's interviewed by Republican Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Well, great to be with you, Michelle. Uh, I would love to get ready to talk about your book, uh, Open Borders, Inc. Thank you. Uh, first part of your book really captured my attention because something that's important to me as a congressman from texas is the extent to which cartels have operational control of our border uh, i've been to the border numerous times and i'd love to get your perspective on that the uh, two million dollars a week that the Reynosa faction of the gulf cartel is making just moving people across in mcallen uh, you know this well it's a real problem they're the ones profiteering on the back of migrants and women and children and can you talk a little bit about that as one of the opening points you make in your great book
1: you're right, Congressman. The, the work that you are doing is, is so important to enlighten the American public uh, about the vice grip that the cartels have at the border, the um, horrifying and appalling impact that has to innocent people on both sides of the border. And one of the things that, that I think was really important to illuminate in Chapter 1 of the book of what I call the caravan cartel is that the drug cartels couldn't do it alone. And I think what's shocking to people is not that you have explicit criminal conspirators out there that are making these billions of dollars uh, in profits and endangering lives and uh, really um, wreaking violence and havoc um, on innocent families and children. But the fact that you have (laughs) minted benevolent charities and religious organizations that Um, may think that they're doing good deeds. And, of course, we all know uh, uh, about the the kind of road that um, good intentions pave. Um, But religious organizations on both sides of the border that are doing service um, and and enabling the drug cartels to make as as much cash as they do. We've seen the illegal alien caravans come across from Central America, up the spine of Mexico, um, into um, your state, and then beyond And the support money that is subsidizing this entire illegal alien shelter network, um, especially churchgoers in America need to understand, is largely coming from their own pockets into collection plates. They think it's helping their neighbors. They think it's helping homeless people in their communities. um, But in many ways, it's going straight to that network. And I name um, many of the shelters from Central America all the way into the interior of the United States that are being subsidized, for example, by the Catholic Church and every sect therein, the Jesuits, the Scalabrinians, um, and in concert with non-governmental organizations like Doctors Without Borders that are creating those magnets and those pull factors um, that the drug cartels then exploit.
0: Well, Michelle, I, I, you're making a great point here, and I, what I'd love to uh, explore a little bit further is uh, the extent to which there's a cycle of human sh- uh, smuggling, and the the extent to which cartels are at the central, um, you know, operational control of that cycle. And to your point about then how it works, so a lot of people I think don't understand the extent to which uh, you've got people who are. Uh, you know, being driven up from countries by cartels and illicit organizations for profit. You know, one report I saw was two billion dollars for cartels for the profit they were making, moving people, not narcotics, but people to get across our country. And then the way they do it is by exploiting our laws and then uh, the asylum laws and the uh, you know Flores catch and release situation that I know you know a lot about. And they come across our border, and then what you find is you go to the border, people are being brought across. They go straight to a bus, get processed by Border Patrol, and then get brought straight to an NGO to then get distributed into the country. And all of this is completing the cycle of smuggling. Can you talk a little bit about that and the exploitation of our laws and how that all comes together?
1: Well, the the question nails – it hits the nail on the head Um, because, you know, your your average news consumer – uh, even if they're fairly well-informed, has the impression that the people at the border are trying to evade a <laughs> border patrol. Right. And you know that's not true. They're marching right up to the station because they've been coached, you know, not, not just, like, along the route to there, but, of course, they're hearing it on the radio in their right. home countries Um, The word spreads very fast and quickly. And, of course, we know now in in your state you see that it's not just Central America. All of these African migrants as well have been coached. And and I think what's alarming, Congressman, is that these people around the world are far more informed about immigration law and all the ins and outs, the nuts and bolts, how to work around all the loopholes. And in many cases, it's not the loopholes. It's actually, you know, how it works. Um, than the American people are about the rules and laws that are on our books that are supposed to protect us. Um, And so, you know, you've got the illegal alien parents that are already here. You know, maybe they got temporary protected status 25 years ago when there was an earthquake in El Salvador. Temporary is never temporary in the world of of open borders. Um, uh, Or they have uh, extended relatives. And then they've got the children back home um, that they pay a coyote to bring across, and the coyote pays the drug cartels to give them the final passage, and everybody's making money. Um, and then you have these NGOs, as, as you mentioned, who get their own cut of, of the profits. And I think what's, what's most offensive to people who really understand the way this works is that, in essence, this is a global human smuggling racket, yeah. and they get to, to operate under the patina and umbrella of compassion, while they accuse all the rest of us of being xenophobes, racists, heartless, whatever, um, the question always comes up about who we are, right, the existential question. And they wrap themselves in the mantle of the flag and the Statue of Liberty, which last time I checked was not in the Constitution of the United States or uh, any of the U.S. code that deals with immigration law, but is, has been exalted as, as such. And even if you look at the Statue of Liberty, it has the phrase liberty enlightening the world, not... liberty liberty absorbing and resettling the entire world.
0: Well, I think that you raised a lot of important points there. And before I move to one different topic, I want to close the loop on the consequences of all of this. You mentioned the humanitarian reality of what we're dealing with, the uh, impact on American citizens, endangerment. I have a citizen in San Antonio, Texas, Jared Vargas, who was unfortunately murdered last summer, uh, was thankfully just Uh, The person who perpetrated that crime, an illegal immigrant who had been caught, released, caught, released, uh, was just uh, prosecuted for that and found guilty. But this is a reality in, in, in America. It's harming American citizens, but also the migrants who seek to come here who are abused, right? The women, the children on journeys while these illicit, illegal organizations profit. And then you said the important part there about compassion, right? To me, this is the false name of compassion, that open borders is somehow good for migrants, is completely backwards. It's empowering these illegal organizations. And again, you talk about these kinds of things in, in your book. And so I'd love to hear your point on that before we move on to a different uh, a chapter.
1: I agree with you. The, the, the massive systemic exploitation of innocent people who want what we all want, better lives for themselves and their children, it, it breaks my heart. Um, and uh, the, 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 the number of pawns um, in, in this really cruel and inhumane Game of, of Open Borders, Inc. is incalculable. And the fact that it's, it, it doesn't just stop at the borders. Uh, you know, I lived in the D.C. swamp area and Montgomery County, which has long prided itself on being an illegal alien sanctuary space. And when I left here 11 years ago, you could already see the signs of MS-13 taking over the public schools, taking over the local malls. It's only metastasized and gotten worse. And I think it's incredibly important to point out that it's not just American citizens that are victims of these crimes, but it is largely other members of these migrant communities who are being victimized, raped and murdered.
0: Well, thanks for making that point. And that kind of well, I'm going to get to the next uh, topic that I think was really caught my eye in your book. Uh, I'm going to say something that's going to shock you and the viewers. I'm a white guy. (laughs) <laughs> and and I, I'm a bald No. White and uh, in chapter four of your book, though, is titled Hate Machine, the Southern Poverty Law Center. And you start and I'm looking at, it at the exact quote without getting into the weeds. Here's what you say. You identify yourself as, quote, a non-white brown skinned daughter of Filipino Catholic immigrants, the wife of a grandson of a Ukrainian Jewish uh, of Ukrainian Jewish migrants, the mother of multiracial, multiethnic children. And then you start pointing out the things that you are not. Uh, xenophobic, racist, white supremacist. Yet these are always the charges. I just left a hearing where some of my Democrat colleagues were accusing the former head of ICE, Tom Homan, who is a lifetime law enforcement officer defending uh, our borders and enforcing our laws. They called him a bigot. Uh, You see this all the time. And could you speak to that from your perspective and what you've gone through in your life and why you take particular offense to that?
1: Yes. And I I want to go back to my very first appearance on C-SPAN in in 2002 when I came out with my very first book, uh, Invasion. And it was on the first year anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks. We are talking to each other, of course, on the 18th anniversary of those attacks. And it was because of the love of country that my immigrant naturalized American parents inculcated in me that fueled me to write that book. And now, you know, at 17 years later, coming back to this topic and really fleshing out uh, the global financing of this immigration chaos, the idea that you have an entire infrastructure that is hell bent on demonizing and smearing every immigration enforcement advocate, every group out there that does the research and tells the truth about the negative impacts on our culture, on our schools, on our public um, health system and welfare, um, let alone national security, it's really daunting because you realize this is, these aren't just random people out there tossing out these smears. Um, it is or- very well orchestrated and it is very well funded, and in large part, it's um, coming from groups that enjoy tax-exempt nonprofit status. So the, the the chapter that I wrote on the Southern Poverty Law Center starts out the way that you read. Because I encountered that smear machine very early on. Now everybody is aware of it with the um, large number of deplatformings that we're seeing of prominent conservatives, um, independents, Trump supporters, um, and other organizations that have found success on the Internet. But very early on, it was immigration that motivated groups like the National Council of La Rasa, the Anti-Defamation League, and a number of subgroups under the umbrella of the Open Society Foundation to come up with their own, like, guidebook, right? A, a, a book of code words that you're not allowed to use. Uh, and for me, in 2006 or 2007, there was a video that had attacked me for talking about the academic concepts of Aztlan and Reconquista, um, the idea that uh, demographically, um, if Uh, Many of these open borders forces were able to overwhelm cities that they would amass electoral power. And all you have to do is look at the numbers and see that that's happening. But to be able to talk about it without being labeled a conspiracy theorist is nearly impossible these days. And it certainly helps the SPLC, which itself is a highly discredited organization that even mainstream liberals and magazines like The Atlantic um, have Uh, you know completely exposed now you've got internal whistleblowers who have talked about harassment and racial discrimination within the organization the poverty palace should no longer be quoted by any mainstream media organization and yet cnn and the washington post uh, continue to confer upon it absolute moral authority to be able to judge who is a quote-unquote white supremacist even if they have as brown skin as i do
0: well, I wonder, you've spent a lot of time down on our southern border, and I have as well, obviously, the district I represent, the 21st Congressional District, which stretches from Austin to San Antonio, out through the Hill Country, out to Rial County, which is about 100 miles from the uh, Rio Grande uh, along the, the Laredo sector. And so I've spent a lot of time in Laredo. I've spent a lot of time in McAllen. Uh, you have, too, right? You've been to yes, the border. I have many, many times. Right. And you've been to the border in Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, and, and uh I wonder if your perspective is the same as mine. I mean, this, it is often brought out, this charge that there's a racist tinge to believing in border security. And I have like two thoughts on that. And I want to get your feeling on it, which is, one, look at the brave men and women at Border Patrol who are overwhelmed right now, who, as one agent told me, is often on diaper patrol instead of border patrol, because they're so overwhelmed. As other agents have said, they're often in a sector where they only have three guys or gals on the line trying to protect a 70-mile stretch, that they'll have a two-mile stretch of 70 miles in Laredo where you can drive a car alongside the river, that you can't uh, see the river through the cane, that you don't have a radio signal, you don't have a cell signal. We're asking them to do the impossible. Here's my point. The majority of the border patrol officers I've engaged with, and I believe it is statistical uh, truth are Hispanic. And they're Hispanic Americans who are along the border who believe that border is uh, part of our sovereignty, and that the rule of law matters, and that that's why people seek to come here. So that'd be one point. And the second point is, with respect to this, uh, the racist charge, how is it uh, somehow good for people of any color to be abused on a journey coming here and have open borders that then empowers the very illegal organizations we discussed earlier in the show, And how is that a good thing from a race standpoint at all? And I wonder if you have thoughts on either of those two points.
1: Yeah, on the first point, I absolutely agree with you. And I cut my teeth in newspaper journalism in Los Angeles in the early 1990s. -hmm. Uh, And not only did I um, report on the perspective of um, American citizens and law-abiding immigrants who were early warning uh, about immigration chaos in that state and trying to take control of it back then— Um, But, of course, had started building up many sources, both in the Border Patrol and ICE. Then I moved up to the Seattle Times and was able to see the perspective of uh, Border Patrol agents and deportation and removal um, officers who worked on the northern part of the border. You know, we spend so much time justly talking about the southern border, but the neglect at the northern border, especially when you have Canadian governments in power um, who see themselves as, as doormats for the world and in large part harboring Islamic extremist groups that then can just traipse across the northern border because all that's uh, stopping them are orange rubber cones, um, it, it's alarming. And they've been under siege for a long time. Congress and, and uh, the Washington swamp always pay lip service to um, wanting to fund them more, wanting to increase their ranks, but they have been purposely turned into, as you say, a diaper patrol because too many special interests don't want them to do their jobs effectively. And another important point you made, of course, is that these Border Patrol agents come from all backgrounds, uh, and they have all skin colors, brown, white, black, yellow. Um, Many, of course, in um, the, the southern border sectors are um, families uh, that come from law-abiding Hispanic families right. themselves. Um, in Colorado, my adopted home state, I visited the Aurora ice facility recently, and uh, the ice agents there and the other people that, that work there um, from, the, from the private contractor, uh, many of them are, you know, proud and um, recently naturalized um, um, Americans uh, who understand that to preserve that special gift of being able to become an American. You need an orderly system that's able to vet properly and decide who we want to let in, who should stay here, and how we should remove the people who don't belong here in the first place.
0: Well, Michelle, I was about to move to uh, business and to move to your Open Borders, Inc., but I, w- I, can't, I can't resist commenting on the Aurora situation. You'll remember I was in Colorado, and I mm-hmm. saw you the weekend that uh, a group of folks stormed that ICE facility in Aurora, turned the American flag upside down, uh, put, you know, abolish ICE on it, and then raised the Mexican flag. And I went to that facility that Saturday morning, the day after that occurred, and you and I talked about this, mm-hmm. that I went in there, and I found 1,200 people, I found clean rooms. I found TVs. I found iPads. I found three square meals a day. I found you know internet access, uh, gyms, and but here's the interesting point. To your point, uh, I there were people in that facility from 57 countries, 57 countries from around the world: Eritrea, Pakistan, India, Indonesia. Right. This is not just a northern triangle and problem with respect to Mexico, is it?
1: No, it's not. It's worldwide. And, yes, I remember when um, you tweeted the picture of you outside of that Aurora facility. It inspired me to do more in my (laughs) own home state. And um, not long after, on Labor Day, just recently, um, we had a stand with ICE rally that drew 200 people on, on a holiday. There is a hunger and a thirst among grassroots ordinary citizens to show their support in a way that hasn't been done until now. And with so many of these ICE facilities under siege, being lied about, uh, with the agents being doxed and harassed, which I talk about in the book in um, Chapter 5 on what I call the A-Team, mm-hmm. abolish ICE, Antifa, and the sanctuary anarchists. Again, this is well subsidized and, and underwritten by forces that are hostile to American sovereignty. And it is very important to, for people to know what's actually going on right. in the facilities. So the tour that you took, the tour that I took, I was stunned, um, Congressman, to find out that among the many amenities that, that you listed, on top of that, you've got uh, these detainees, many, of course, of them still, you know, criminal, alien, repeat offenders and deportation fugitives who have free access to lexis Nexus. Mm-hmm. Um, they have telepsychiatry appointments, full-service pharmacy. I've been to Colorado State Department of Corrections facilities that don't have a fraction of these amenities, and yet if you believe the uh, hysteria-driven squad right. um, here in the Beltway, um, they are on the order of uh, concentration camps from, from World War II. This is absolutely ridiculous, and, and um, you know more disturbingly, the the incitement to violence is not just some sort of speculation, um, and you would think that with all of the targets that have now faced either um, shootings, like the one the uh, the shots that were fired in San Antonio, the Molotov cocktail uh, throwing at the um, CIS office in in Florida, and obviously the attack by the Antifa thug in in, in Tacoma, if um, you know, if the the ideological chips had fallen on the other side, this would be declared an epidemic, and there would be congressional hearings out the wazoo about uh, how to prevent this epidemic of violence from continuing.
0: Well, you make a great point, and I'll, I'll add just one more point to that about the ICE facilities. Uh, one consequence, right, of the massive influx, the almost 900,000 people who have been apprehended since last October 1, uh, that's not counting those not apprehended, as you know, 600,000 of them have been caught and released. But a huge number that we've got to find a place to put them, where are they going? They're going to ICE facilities. And so when I was at the facility in Aurora, what I was told was that 80 percent of those 1,200 were people who had come across our southern border recently. Well, what does that mean? To your point about criminals, we're not being able to do as much interior enforcement because we don't have a place to put them. And by interior enforcement, as you know, and I I wonder if you want to comment on this, we're talking about hardened criminals, dangerous people, people engaging in, uh, you know, battery or or assault or or murder or whatever it might be. And so we're having a tougher time actually doing our job interior because they're all overwhelmed. Border patrol is overwhelmed. ICE is overwhelmed.
1: It's such a trenchant point, Congressman, and I wish we could just shout it from the rooftops every single day. The problem is that, you know, when we talk about the policy consequences, these are hidden costs. Um, you know, it's not like a uh, like a like a, uh, a a viral photo of Yanella Sanchez that you can Photoshop onto a, a Time cover. Right. Um, you know, and and the left, of course, um, exploits this ability to tell these visceral stories. But we can't tell the stories of the hidden um, impact of other types of victims of crime that we can't know about, um, and the displacement in places like the Aurora Ice Facility of hardened criminal repeat aliens, like you say, with these people who are being, you know, surged across the border and enabled by all of these NGOs and this entire Open Borders Inc. network that I've, uh, I've exposed. Um, you know, I moved away from Montgomery County to Colorado mm-hmm. thinking yep. I was escaping it, And, you know, the salient point for everyday Americans across the country is there's no safe space from Open Borders, Inc.
0: Well, you you couldn't be more right. Uh, Mayor of Uvalde, Texas, a small town west of San Antonio, came up and did a press conference with me up here in San Antonio uh, because, I mean, up here in D.C., sorry, because of the uh, dangers that are now posed to the people in Uvalde, just, you know, 50, 60, 70 miles from the border. We're having a real impact for folks. But it's in Colorado. It's in Montgomery County, your former home. We're seeing all sorts of terrible things and consequences and abuses by people who are coming here illegally from the Northern Triangle. So I'm glad you made that point. But I do think we should pivot to uh, big business. You know, your book is titled Open Borders, Inc. Uh, There's obviously a correlation and a tie to uh, the business community. You know, one of the things that I have said before is that I think we should be uh, wrong. It's wrong for us to stand on the Rio Grande with a no trespassing sign but then kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, hold up a help wanted sign. And we we do that a lot in this country. And I think we need to have a robust conversation about what's actually going on. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because you do in your book, you talk about big business and Amazon and, and how that plays into all of this.
1: Yeah. In fact, most of the Silicon Valley overlords have their own vested interest. It's not merely virtue signaling. If it was simply empty virtue signaling to, you know, spread money around to, um, uh, the Racist um, Project in 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 Texas that uh, provides pro bono legal services to illegal alien family members, you know, I I, I suppose then the pr- the problem wouldn't be so intractable. But um, for a lot of these Silicon Valley uh, companies, and I I wrote about this as a focus on of my last book, Sold Out, with uh, John Miano, who is a former American software programmer turned lawyer for American IT workers who've been harmed by. Uh, these cheap labor pipelines for um, IT workers from China and India, um, their their, um, explicit goals are to bring in as many cheap laborers as they can who then outsource the the work. Um, So the the problem, of course, is that a lot of these Silicon Valley companies have invited the SPLC (laughs) into their inner chambers um, to help them identify uh, their worst political opponents, and then to deplatform them and completely throttle them from telling the truth. And it's connecting the dots of, of that money. I mean, Tim Cook uh, and uh, Jeff Bezos have donated to many of these deep pocketed um, nonprofit organizations uh, that are crusading for illegal alien rights. You wonder how it is that they have instant representation in court to sue over every last uh, Trump initiative to enforce the law. Um, And so, you know, big business and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce are are, are a huge um, reason for that.
0: Well, let me ask your perspective on this, because, as you know, I've been working in this universe for a while when I was on the Hill in the Senate Judiciary Committee 14, 15 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. Uh, Then again, as Senator Cruz's chief of staff and now as a member of Congress. And also when I was in the attorney general's office, we litigated DAPA uh, through the Fifth Fifth Circuit up to the United States Supreme Court trying to enforce the law. It has struck me that uh, the the circle that we find ourselves in is significantly a part of the Chamber of Commerce sort of business crowd that wanted to tamp down any effort to have a sensible border security solution. One like, for example, for example, Democrat Sylvester Reyes in El Paso supported with Operation Hold the Line, building a fence in El Paso that would work. And now his successor, Better O'Rourke, wants to tear that down. You know, we know that border security needs some sort of infrastructure and fencing. Southern California, we had 600,000 and something annual apprehensions in the ni- mid-1990s. That number is down to about the 30,000s. Why? Triple layer fencing. This is not rocket science for most Americans. Uh, we can have a rational border p- policy from Brownsville all the way to El Paso and Texas and out to the Pacific. My concern and my question for you is, wh- why do we end up in an endless cycle with some interest not all particularly bigger business or bigger representation u.s chamber in dc mm-hmm. not wanting us to actually enforce the law
1: well you know money talks and um and i, I think that a lot of local chamber of commerce members have no idea uh, what the the national chamber of commerce actually represents and and i think most of these grassroots um local uh, members would be appalled to know that um and it, you know, it would be one thing again if we could just point fingers at uh, Beito or um, Julian Castro and say, "Whoa, they're really out there. They want to decriminalize border trespassing, and they're talking about this seriously. They want—they really do want to abolish ICE and not replace it with with anything else." But lurking behind them, of course, are these larger corporate interests that allow the crazies and and the radicals to give voice to the ultimate working agenda of uh, their own organizations. I mean, they will be very happy if every last willing worker in the world is able to cross the border for dollar an hour wages.
0: Well, let me ask you this on a related uh, point, and and we're talking about business community and and, uh, free trade, right, is really important in Texas Mm -hmm. and uh, NAFTA and having a free flow of goods and services across the border to Mexico. My observation is you've got a burgeoning and growing middle class in Mexico because of NAFTA and getting free trade, and that our goal and objective as a society ought to be to have an encouraged economic growth throughout the Western Hemisphere, Mexico, the Northern Triangle. We want that to occur. We want to decrease the pressure valve for people to come here. But isn't part of that is the economic situation and making sure we stand up and stand up for free trade? I would note that Nancy Pelosi is blocking the president's goal of getting USMCA done because she doesn't want to give him a victory. But why why don't we also recognize that enforcement in order to stop the magnet for people coming across is part of that? In other words, it's better for Mexico, better for Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, better for Venezuela and and all in South America, for us to have a secure border where everybody knows what the rules are. They're welcome to come here through the open doors. And then that would actually result in better lives for the people in these in other countries.
1: I agree with you. And so the formulation is basically that interior enforcement and enforcement of our own borders is empowering um, to, you know, the people in these home countries um, to create more wealth in their own countries and to convince them to take more accountability for their, um, for their own homes. Um, but no, we're just racist for believing that the, the best way for um, people to improve their lives and prosperity is to not have to risk um, you know, their own kids' lives and, and enrich drug cartels and, and all of these NGOs. And, and here again, the financial imperative comes into play. Um, I have a section in Chapter 1 called Banking on Illegals, where I talk specifically about all the financial institutions from Wells Fargo to Bank of America or Bank of Illegal Aliens in America, I suppose. Now there are all these apps uh, and PayPal is in on it and a lot of the Silicon Valleys uh, to be able to more seamlessly send remittances back home. Um, We have President Trump who has... Vowed and promised and signaled and telegraphed that he's going to start uh, taxing the billions of remittances that are sent back to Mexico and the rest of the world. Hasn't done it yet. And shockingly, I think for most people, although I know you know this and um, people um, who have followed these issues know, the Federal Reserve itself runs a remittance program called Directo a Mexico, where it recruits illegal alien customers in America by throwing festivals and having carnival games for the children of illegal aliens to sign them up so that they can get a cut too.
0: Well, one of the things that I think uh, grabbed my attention in your book is a little bit about talking about the media. And I think you referred to what some of the media personalities have done to create a climate of hate. So kind of Extending from what we've already been talking about a little bit there, you know, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, how that's impacting the whole conversation right now with respect to how we actually solve the problem in a rational, insane way, believing in sovereignty, believing in free trade, believing in, as people of faith, wanting to help people who need help, but believing the best way to do that is to have a system that works, where the law is enforced and where it isn't this open borders wink-wink that actually harms people because they're being controlled by dangerous cartels. Can you talk a little bit about how the media is fomenting that wrongly?
1: Yes. So uh, it is incredibly difficult to talk rationally about policy consequences when you have open borders propagandists in the media constantly smearing patriots as hatriots, and seizing control of the absolute moral authority card, um, you know, to confer um, essentially this um, you know, moral authority only on illegal aliens and their families at the expense of American families who've been separated. You know, that never, ever comes up. And actually, I, I wrote a column this week about questions that I know that the open borders media are not going to ask these Democrat presidential uh, candidates. Questions like, for, I mean, the debate is in Houston, Right. Um, Houston, which is a sanctuary space, where Jocelyn uh, Johnson lost her husband, both of them members of the Houston Police Department, and she does not have standing in American courts to be able to sue uh, to hold the sanctuary anarchists accountable. Where are the bleeding hearts on the left for families like this? She and her husband are both African American. Um, And there are so many stories like that, and yet you have an open borders media that when President Trump uh, finally embraced many of these angel, angel families and told their stories um, during uh, the State of the Union, these media types on Twitter were proactively um, smearing them, um, sneering at them while uh, they were being applauded in, in the chamber. They have absolute contempt for American citizens while they exalt every last supposed victim of Uh, the illegal immigration racket, and in many cases, lie. I talk about the straight-out narrative deception. We talked about Yanela Sanchez, many cases like that. And it certainly doesn't help that you have um, outright illegal aliens in the media, like Jose Antonio Vargas, who's been supported by Soros Money, um, out there calling himself a real American, obliterating... Uh, The the very fundamental difference between people who came here legally, like my parents did from the Philippines and people like him who came here illegally from the Philippines.
0: Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned what uh, you are talking about with respect to Houston and some of the sanctuary problems that we have. I mentioned earlier Jared Vargas, who was unfortunately murdered last July in San Antonio, gotten to know his wonderful mom, Lori, his family, his aunt Kristen, uh, his whole family's brother um, and and their wonderful family. And they're just blown away by the state of our laws. Uh, and they're really hurt, right? They lost a loved one. And what I'll hear from some critics will say, well, you know, uh, you, you know, there are crimes that are committed by American citizens. They try to play percentages about who does more. My point is very simple. That doesn't do anything to bring Jared back for Lori, right? And this is somebody who is here who wasn't supposed to be here. By the way, the 900,000 people that came across our border, 600,000 caught and released, we're not performing adequate screening, and if even only one percent of those people are coming in are are bad people and associated with MS-13 or gangs, that's a lot of people, right? That's nine thousand people. Yeah. And so I wonder what can you talk a little bit more about the Angel families, the direct impact on American citizens. And then one last point: a lot of people don't know uh, the stash houses and the abuses that continue. There were we found a stash house. We, meaning the United States government, in Houston, with fifty-four people in a basement being held hostage to pay. Ransom back to cartels on the other side of the Rio Grande. That's real. That's happening in America. Can, can you talk about these things?
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing you talked about there, which is a point that I always try to stress, and I have over the last twenty-five years that I've been covering these issues. Um, you know, yes, they, the the open borders propagandists will go back and forth about you know, well, you know, what whatever the you know the proportion of, of criminal the the one hundred percent of the criminal aliens. Uh, committed crimes that were 100 percent preventable. Uh, And if uh, the gun control lobby applied, you know, its own, if it saved just one life mantra to immigration control, um, you know, we'd be so much better off. Um, And this revolving door, of course, has victimized so many people. We've talked about it before. It's not just American citizens, but people of all races and, and, and backgrounds, um, and the, the callousness with which the media and Hollywood, especially—I have a whole entire chapter on that too—the intersection between, between Hollywood and, and Open Borders Inc. The callousness with which they show, in particular, families of color, to borrow their own uh, phraseology, is stunning to me. And I contrasted the the outpouring of compassion for Yanella. Sanchez by Hollywood, the media, and elected Democrats in California to the near code of silence there was when Ronil Singh, this hero, legal immigrant of Indian descent from Fiji, was ruthlessly murdered um, on Christmas um, Day uh, just a couple of, of years ago. And at the same time that Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris were tweeting about the separation of families at the border, they had Zero, zero to say about Ronil Singh. And so I'd love it if there was a media moderator that would ask these Democratic presidential candidates raise your hand if you know who Ronil Singh is.
0: Well, you've got so many great uh, subjects that are covered in your book. I'm not sure we're going to hit them all, but there's a, you just referenced one, and there's, there's some more. You know, you talk in this whole Open Borders, Inc., right? This is a web, and we talked about sanctuary cities. Another factor in all of this, right, is the faith community. And I find it sometimes ironic that the faith community is complicit in allowing this illicit trade of people because, again, it's, I think— in the false name of compassion, right, that somehow this is a good thing to be able to do. Can you talk a little bit about the Catholic Church, I think you mentioned in the book, the evangelical churches uh, and that are a part of this whole network, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly, maybe for good purposes in their, in, in their hearts, but at the end of the day, they're still a part of this endless uh, uh, you know, human smuggling cycle.
1: Yes, I'm Catholic myself, and, of course, over the years I have become more aware uh, that the Vatican and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops are actively involved in subverting our borders. But I didn't know how deep uh, and, and how many billions of dollars were at stake, uh, many of them in the form of government contracts for the refugee resettlement racket. Um, and in the case of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, um, exclusive subcontracts uh, dealing with um, sheltering and um, and uh, paying for foster care for unaccompanied uh, children, un- unaccompanied minors from um, south of the border in Central America. Uh, and what's alarming is that you've got many unwitting Catholics um, who are giving money to Catholic relief services or Catholic charities or the Catholic Campaign for Human Development who don't understand that um, these organizations have been hijacked in some cases by social justice warriors or it's in their DNA um, that that they were in alliance with Sololinsky in Chicago. And so you know we give money every Thanksgiving as part of a national campaign and and as I said before, people are under the impression that this is going um, and staying in their neighborhoods when it's being sent abroad and then um, I mean it's it's like this vicious cycle. It's like this money laundering, machine. Um, And it's not just the Catholic Church. Um, I talk about the Lutheran Immigrant and Refugee Services. Uh, This is one of the voluntary agencies, VOLAGs in the the Beltway vernacular, um, that has one of these exclusive refugee resettlement contracts. And they're responsible for bringing Ilan Omar and her family here. Um, And they're largely responsible for transforming Uh, the Twin Cities, into the biggest breeding ground for jihad, Um, plots that are not only taking place here domestically, but of course many of these young men who were brought here um, uh, in their toddler years or their early elementary school years now going back to Somalia uh, and killing their own people or targeting American soldiers. So I find it highly ironic that you have these liberal military leaders who published a piece in the Washington Post recently arguing against a more radical reduction of refugee resettlement numbers by saying that it would make us more unsafe because we need to import more um, Arabic translators from Afghanistan and Iraq back here. My answer to that is an appendix in Open Borders, Inc., which mm-hmm. profiles 60 of what I call refugee jihadis including uh, at least two Muslim translators that were employed by the U.S. Army who were arrested, charged, or convicted of plotting jihad against America.
0: You know, you mentioned a little bit ago uh, something else that caught my attention in your book and something that struck me a little bit is about the funding uh, of a lot of these entities that are out there, particularly on the left. Um, George Soros, you mentioned him by name, uh, he obviously spreads a lot of money around trying to push an, an agenda, I would argue a fairly radical agenda. And I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about his and or other uh, wealthy donor uh, you know, forces that are impacting this debate.
1: Yes. So it's become verboten to talk about George Soros. He has many of his minions um, that are employed by groups like Media Matters or, um, well, the now defunct Think Progress, groups like this. Um, that have labeled any criticism of George Soros' spending as anti-Semitism. And as you mentioned, I am the wife of of the grandson of Ukrainian Jews, and yet this still doesn't insulate me from these ridiculous ad hominem charges. Um, So the chapter that I wrote about George Soros is simply filled with facts about um, how the large bulk of his $25 billion um, net worth is now being directed toward the Open Society Foundations. $18 billion he has uh, earmarked um, to achieve his agenda. And again, this is not conspiracy theory. I read his book called The Case for Global Governance, and he says that he considers sovereignty, quote, an obstacle, an obstacle to his goal of using the United Nations to achieve his own ends, whether they're fi- for financial reasons or ideological reasons. And um, what's daunting is that Um, For your informed, um, at least readers on my side of the ideological aisle, we know that he's involved in um, many high-profile groups um, that always become active during uh, the electoral season. But there are hundreds and hundreds of them that proliferate um, with names that you don't even understand what they mean. The Abolish ICE movement in New York City, for example, um, has been perpetrated mostly by a group called make the road New York. I don't even know what that means, but they came out of nowhere to organize thousands of people to descend on the airports in New York City um, when Trump tried to introduce the the travel ban, um, which was all centered on making sure that we don't have another 9-11. And there are numerous of, of these groups that then turn around and take their Soros grants and grant them to other organizations. Um, I think it's it's really important for people to see just how many layers are involved here um, and to make sure that in their own neighborhoods that they're doing their own homework uh, about who's fomenting sanctuary cities, for example, or um, who's spearheading the drives for um Driver's licenses for illegal aliens or in-state tuition discounts. We talked about Montgomery County, Maryland, and Casa de Maryland um, basically has been a fiefdom in Montgomery County. And its political action arm, Casa in Action, um, endorsed uh, the Montgomery County executive there, Mark Ehrlich. It's It's a cozy little network.
0: Well, I, yeah, I think you just articulated that very well. And I think one thing that might help for those who are viewing is to truly understand Open Borders, Inc., uh, you know, walking someone through the um, cycle of this human smuggling effort. Right. That's a, That's at the center of it. That a family sitting in the northern triangle in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, who are struggling, they've got some economic unrest. and They say, you know what, I'd like to go to America. And they're told, you know what, you don't have to come to the normal channels, just come up. You pay a fee and then you'll get taken across the river and then you'll be able to do whatever you want to do. And they're told that with some degree of of honesty, right, because what the cartels are saying and some of the illegal organizations, they're saying pay a fee. Now, what is that fee? Different people you talk to. It's something like seven thousand dollars. And so a family in the United States, a cousin or an uncle or an aunt will pay the fee for somebody or somebody back home will pay the fee. And then they'll bring somebody to the border. They'll pay coyotes. And it's, it's an actual supply chain. It's a, it's, there's a whole business model built around this. And they'll then take a video of somebody coming across the river, send the video back to the home family. Then sometimes they'll take a dad or a brother and they'll abuse them. And they'll take a video of the abuse, send it to them, and then ask for more money, more ransom. Then they'll get across the river then sometimes they're taken to some sort of stash house or something and then held for ransom. In the meantime, when they come across the river, as you pointed out, they go straight to Border Patrol because they know they're going to get caught and released. Because if you have a child under our current interpretation of the laws, I think it's a bad interpretation, it's your get-out-of-jail-free card, it's your your automatic entry card, right? And so you get to come into the United States. So I could go on and on, but I think it's important for the American people, and and I think you alluded to this in the whole notion of Open Borders, Inc., that this is a whole system. It all ties together to do this and accomplish this to the detriment of our sovereignty and migrants who seek to come here.
1: That's right. And the fluency with which all of these players um, speak about this racket, the derecho de pisos, that, that premium that they pay to, to get across, um, knowing that Al Atro Lotto is right there, the binational um, phalanx of lawyers there to um, hold their Know Your Rights seminars. We talked about LexisNexis uh, inside the, the ICE facilities. Right. Um, and there's a, an appendix um, in Open Borders Inc. that lays out all of those legal organizations and an entire army of what I call the illegal alien lawyers lobby. So when you have every law school that's recruiting and then right. every white shoe law firm that provides pro bono legal services and then that's bringing cases all the way up to the Supreme Court, let alone the judicial. It's not just the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I mean, I, and I understand that that's a great um, sort of shorthand for people signaling that they understand that there's a problem with the courts. Um, but when you have, you know, these individual circuit court judges just, you know, unilaterally asserting authority um, to overrule the president's plenary powers on, on immigration, we have a, a, a systemic problem. And, 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 you know, people ask me, well, what can I do Well, one thing is to make sure that if you have the power to cast votes for district attorneys, (laughs) that you're going to vote for a district attorney who is um, not going to look the other way at immigration law. And I think we should start impeaching some of these open borders judges as well.
0: Well, we could have a whole uh, hour-long conversation <laughs> on just that alone, yeah. uh, given the extent to which those judges interfere with, I think, reasonable efforts by the administration to try to uh, secure the border and Congress to, to make their stances. But that actually brings me to an important point here, which is the politicians right now, right? We've got a um, significant debate going on about the state of the border, and what the president wants to do, is trying to do, ICE, Border Patrol. Uh, for the first five months of this year, my Democrat colleagues repeatedly said there was no crisis. It was a made-up crisis. It was a manufactured crisis. I'd go to the floor of the House, and I would talk about the numbers of people, hundred and something thousand apprehensions in a month, and I'd be told, ah, it's a manufactured crisis. Suddenly in the summer, it was, oh, wait, oh we got to admit there's a crisis. Uh, what do you see as the main problem here from a political standpoint, and how much have politicians uh, are making it worse, and how much of the problem is politicians attacking law enforcement?
1: I think that the incitement to violence of the squad and pretty much every mainstream Democrat now is incredibly alarming. And I think that's why you're seeing these grassroots uh, manifestations of support for for ICE. Um, The disingenuousness of uh, all of these Democrats and certainly the presidential field on um, suddenly determining that uh, a non-crisis was now a catastrophic uh, event Um, just speaks to the the lack of of any adults in the Democrat Party back rooms on this issue. Um, And, you know, there used to be rational, sane voices on this. Barbara Mm -hmm. Jordan of your home state was, uh, you know, a true heroine and patriot. And, uh, you know, there isn't one Democratic presidential candidate... Um, who will stand up and say, you know, we shouldn't have Medicare for all illegal aliens. We should put American citizens first. We should um, really believe in this idea of securing the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity first. Um, and I suppose of all of them, Tulsi Gabbard now has shown some glimmer of, of sanity on the issue. Uh, but when you have the the head of the Democrat National Convention um, As someone, Thomas Perez, who used to head Casa de Maryland, the radical fringe has become the center of the Democrat Party.
0: Well, I'm glad you pointed that out. And, uh, you know, as I think about the importance of your book right now and the timing of the subject matter, I'm really glad you mentioned the uh, Medicare for all point, right? I mean, Milton Friedman, famous free market economist, was once asked, I believe, in the 70s, whether he supported open borders. And he said, absolutely. Now, keep in mind, this is in a pre-9-11 world. But he said, absolutely, if you don't have a social welfare state. correct, And that's an important point here, right, because of the magnet. And it's important that we have sovereignty and that we have a way to manage all of this and the security of our citizens and that migrants have a safe way to come here. Uh, But I think that's an important point that you made with the Medicare for All because every single Democrat candidate raised their hand. And, and, and if you think about what that magnet would look like and what that would do to upend our immigration system, the numbers that we've seen this year of almost a million would swell to uh, untold numbers. Where where do you think we go from here? What do you, what do you get out of uh, this book and, and what do you think we do to shape the uh, narrative and what you're trying to accomplish with uh, Open Borders, Inc.?
1: So people always ask, well, what do I do now? And um, for all seven, this is my seventh book that I've written I've, I've never intended my books to just become doorstops um, or for people to just read them and then uh, these books to have the shelf life of, of French fries. I, I want them to last and I want people to use the information. And so I'm trying to practice what I preach by going out there. I mean, I've seen so many brave people on the front lines for, for so long who um, haven't had the privilege of having a platform that I have and so you can't let fear guide you. I also feel like if you can take small steps to do what you can to defund Open Borders, Inc., um, and you can start small. Some of these things are harder than others. I mean, if you don't want to support what Google is doing anymore, and you've got Google, Amazon, and Microsoft, who all of whose employees have now essentially declared war on ice. They're pressuring their CEOs to stop doing business, any business at all, Uh, with anyone who works at the Department of Homeland Security, wean yourself off of those platforms. You know, MySpace doesn't exist anymore. And there was a point at which we all thought that it was going to rule the world. It no longer exists. We we don't have to yield and and capitulate. Um, And so, you know, I've even changed banks from a national chain that was uh, embracing illegal uh, immigration to a local bank in my hometown. That's my first step. And then we have to lobby... Um, ourselves and raise our voices um, and pressure the people in here in in the swamp uh, to do more to defund, for example, uh, many of these nonprofit tax exempt groups that are, I think, engaging in seditious behavior.
0: Well, Michelle, I appreciate your book. I appreciate the timing of it. I think we can solve this problem if we work at it. You know, I think we've got solutions that we've set in committees here on Capitol Hill. One-page bills that would solve the asylum problem. One-page bills that would solve the Flores catch-and-release problem. Funding ICE at the level President Obama asked of about a billion dollars in order to deal with what we need to on the border to stop uh, cartels. Labeling cartels as foreign terrorist organizations is a bill I introduced to do, but it just takes the resolve to do it. And I really appreciate you exposing, I think, this kind of network that's running against what the American people want, which is a rational, sane system built on the rule of law so that people can come here, really live the American dream, but do it safely according to our law. And I know you agree with that.
1: Amen. And I want to thank you. If we could clone you 434 times, (laughs) that would go a long way, too. So thank you for your time. I know you're busy. And please keep doing what you're doing, Congressman. Thanks, Michelle.
0: God bless.